Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today we are recording from the 42nd Critical Care Congress in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Joining us today is Neil A. Halpern, MD, FCCM, who is Chief of Critical Care Medicine Services and Medical Director of Respiratory Therapy at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. Dr. Halpern is here with us to discuss his lecture, Designing Alarms, the Human Factor, which he presented during the Critical Care Congress. Well, welcome. Thanks a lot for coming and talking. My pleasure. It's uh, certainly an honor to sit with folks like you and uh, gain some wisdom. You spoke uh, about uh, current technology and ICU alarms uh, and some of the difficulties and some of the promising aspects in the future. What what do you see as the current issues with ICU alarms? The, The current issues are we have many devices in the room, a multiplicity of devices, and they each put out what I would call device-based alarms. And, and those alarms are reflective of many issues in the typical ICU room. They may reflect problems with the patient, problems with the device, or uh, system-wide problems altogether. In addition, the alarms may represent a life-threatening event, an imminent event, or an alert. And it's very hard for staff to sort that out. Uh, And the prime target group that I am concerned about, certainly for this discussion, is the bedside ICU nurse, who already has a lot of work to deal with with the patient, with the family. And then all these alarms are going off in the room to sort out what is important versus what is irrelevant, what is real and what is nuisance, and take care of the patient and answer all the many questions of the family and of the overbearing intensivists can be a a great challenge. So that's my concern for right now. Yeah, I guess people talk about alarm fatigue. There are so many false alarms. I've certainly seen that at our institution and seen, um, we've had some recent issues um, and perhaps you can, perhaps you can give some advice, but uh, with uh, certain, you know, being disconnected from the cardiac monitor, uh, and it's a relatively low-level alarm, but if someone's not being monitored and they have an event at that time, we've had two um, difficult issues with that. And I, I do struggle with what the solutions are. So, as you brought up, many of the alarms are false. In, in the studies that have looked at ICU alarms, approximately 90% are false. What does a false alarm mean? They may be technically correct, but they may reflect blood drawing off an A-line, they may reflect pulse oximeter coming off, they may reflect dampened uh, waveforms. They may not reflect anything real with the patient. And And of those that do reflect real things with the patient, much of it is irrelevant. So if you ask a bedside nurse uh, of 100 alarms that you hear, how many of them did you have to hear? And of those, how many did you respond to? It may be less than 5%. So I think our goal has to be to find, using advanced informatics tools, there's no other way to do this, to find that small percentage of alarms that's meaningful. And, And the big picture is how do we take a lot of information and a lot of data and convert it to meaningful information. 
not just at the bedside, but you mentioned disconnects. So that, that can happen anywhere the patient is traveling. And if your alarms are turned off when that disconnect happens, or the nurse isn't in the room when that disconnect happens, has anybody know what's happening? So I think the challenge is uh, to convert this information, to funnel it, to make it smart, and, and to get it to the people that have to hear it or know what's happening in order for, be, for it to be useful and, and be potentially life-saving to a patient. And, and we're no good at this today. Yes, I would I definitely agree with that statement. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I guess the other aspect is, is the patient and family, uh, the, the noise uh, that potentially has to delirium, disorientation for the patient, and much anxiousness for the family uh, for every little alarm. Uh, and it's, uh, especially it's when the nurse isn't reacting to it. Especially why is no one coming to this Nobody's alarm? Nobody's coming right? and the nurse is standing there. Why aren't you doing anything? <laughs> the nurse knows it's not important. It's an artifact. The family doesn't. So I, I don't know if that can ever get solved because that's a problem of family anxiety in dealing with a very sick loved one. And each family deals with it differently. And I, I think families have to be properly educated before they walk in an ICU room. You can't just bring them in. It would be as if any of us walked into the cockpit of a plane in the middle of flight. It looks overwhelming, and there are all these buttons and dials and lights and noises. To the pilot and co-pilot, it's not overwhelming to them. They look very relaxed when I've gone in cockpits. So. The question is, what do we tell our families? How do we properly orient them? You're going to come into the ICU room. Your loved one doesn't look that great. Going to be connected to a lot of tubes. Now, I can't, now I tell them that. I can't tell you that I tell them you're going to hear a lot of noise, but this conversation will change that. <laughs> so, you're going to hear a lot of noise. You can't tell them it's not important. It's noise related to their loved one. I think what we'd have to say that the nurses know how to discern noise and noise that needs to be reacted to. So I think that's a good point. But the fact is, there's no way to remove all the anxiety that people feel when they visit a patient, their loved one, no one. Sure. So what current solutions do we have uh, and uh, are there things that we can, many of us can implement now? And what's coming in the future as well? So I think, I think to look into the future, we have to just look at the current technology first. So all of our patients are hooked to a physiologic monitor, hooked to a ventilator, infusion pumps. That's, that's core ICU monitoring and, and, and therapeutic uh, development. All of those devices put out what I would call device-based alarms. The question is, how do they get set? And are they set in a meaningful way? Are they individualized to a patient? Or does the ICU have a protocol, default A, and all the alarms are set a certain way? And is that default, does the ICU have two or three different defaults, depending if it's a stable patient, as in my world, getting chemotherapy, or the next bed coming in multi-organ failure and shock compressors, that may lead to a total different kind of default alarm settings that could be applied today with a little background homework on nursing and doctor's part and biomedical engineering to help set profiles of alarms. 
The other alternative is that the alarms on devices are individualized to the patient when the, when the patient comes in, and as the patient gets worse or gets better, re-individualized. But it's, it's just a lot of work on the part of the nurse. And that's really where the current situation is. Can I ask what you're sure. currently doing in your ICU from that perspective? So, yes. So we've moved a little into the future, and we use an alarm delivery system. So we'll start with the ventilators because that's where the technology seemed to start. So all our ventilators are linked to a middleware system and that middleware system is configurable to, to look at all the alarms. So let's say the average ventilator puts out 30 to 40 potential alarms. You can then look at those 30 to 40 alarms and say, which of those alarms do I want the respiratory therapist in the ICU to know about within five seconds of it happening. So now we've gone from 30 to 40 alarms down to three to five alarms, because not every alarm is very important. And through middleware that the ventilators are linked to, I could do this, set this alarm delivery system, the sorting and the delivery and that's what we do today. So our respiratory therapists, our charge nurses in the ICU carry a pager, and you could do it with a pager, an iPhone, or a droid, whatever you like, uh, to get crisis level alarms from the ventilator. We're in the process of taking our physiologic monitors and getting the alarms out of there to the same middleware that handle the ventilator alarms and put that on the same handheld. So a typical physiologic monitor may have 40 to 50 alarms and many permutations. Is the heart rate fast? Is that heart rate fast in atrial fibrillation, flutter, and SVT? The sophisticated monitor could read the EKG better and better. So what, what one could do is select the real crisis alarms. So I want to know VTAC, VFib, asystole, for example, maybe a few more. And that's what would get transmitted to the handheld. So whether the nurse is at the bedside or walked out for a minute, when that kind of alarming situation occurs, there will be a transmission to a responsible party, in our case a charge nurse, whatever the IC would call the nurse in charge, and that person's job is to look at it and immediately respond. Now, it may be that the situation is a disaster. It may be that there was a disconnect or something false in it. But that person's job is to get to the bedside and respond. And that is the next level of technology that is available today to put into the ICU. But it does involve informatics work and cooperation and funding and thought to put a middleware server into your system that could capture all this, be configurable to sort out the alarms and have a delivery system and you have to have somebody that accepts the responsibility of, of getting the delivery and that moves the alarm out of the patient room to a responsible party so um, let me take a step back and ask a couple of questions related to that um, one is just the, the approach you were talking about in terms of having kind of standard defaults versus um, specific alarms for each patient. Which approach do you take and, and, and what would you recommend? I think we probably do a mix. We have a large contingent of nurses. 
we have nursing leadership that sees the alarms a little differently one to the other and I don't know that the doctor teams are that involved in alarm setting at the bedside. It may be that we, along with others, especially from the intensive care community, doctor community, have to sit down more and pay attention more to that. Because if you think about it, when was the last time you walked into an ICU room and somewhere in the conversation was, can you just tell me the high and low heart rate, blood pressure, with me probably not very often so part of that's a limitation on us that we have to get more engaged because the alarms are what saves the patient once the patient has had surgical intervention IR intervention whatever the intervention is then the patient is stably critically ill or unstably critically ill and, and the alarms and the bedside nurse that's it we are there intermittently and it sounds as though with this with middleware, part of the idea is actually notifying an extra layer of help. Uh, so not just the bedside nurse sees the alarm, but notifies the respiratory therapist if that's a, a critical person involved, or the charge nurse has an extra layer to make sure that uh, adequate support is at the bedside, or the physician, uh, et cetera. Correct. That's a hundred percent correct. That's the purpose of the middleware. So. Let's say you're in a hospital where one intensivist at night on the 12-hour night shift is covering from 30 to 40 patients. It, it, really an impossible task. So how does that clinician know what is catastrophic or not? You'd need this kind of delivery system to get it to the clinician. In our circumstance, we've had some near misses where the nurse walked out of the room maybe sign the patient over, maybe not. Uh, most of the physiologic monitoring systems have a optical flash bed to bed, but not an acoustic noise room to room. And what if nobody's sitting at a central station? A catastrophic, it's a setup for a catastrophic event. So we've looked at this middleware layer to uh, implement some corrective actions to put a fix in. In, in its current state, is, it, is there then the ability to lessen the number of alarms? Yes. So when, when such a system is put in place, there is a learning period. So you have to figure out what alarms do you want to transmit out from the myriad of alarms coming into the server. Then you have to look and see what is the repetitive nature of those alarms and how can you reset your middleware to, to tease out at what level of the alarm should it be transmitted to the extra layer, so to speak. And it is all configurable. And it should not be in a, done in a default level. And then you've just duplicated the problem at the bedside. So our goal is to put some configurable middleware in, which is available in the marketplace, to uh, to control the environment better. For example, point of care testing. So one can have a small device at every bedside. It has to be linked to something. So point of care testing has always come with middleware. 
before the data gets to a laboratory information system and subsequently to a hospital information system, electronic medical record. So we've seen over the years how the middleware of point-of-care testing keeps track of the users, keeps track of the finances of it through cartridges or whatever devices are in place. So we've seen middleware and other technologies that are able to seize control of the technology. And interestingly, in the point of care uh, testing marketplace, for example, glucose meters all over a hospital, you can have 100 glucose meters all feeding the information. And the middleware, a third-party vendor's middleware, they, they connect to every glucose meter, will control the process for you, move the information along to who it has to go to, get it to other aspects of the electronic record. And I think we have to take this middleware concept and apply it into the ICU to handle the alarms. Everybody knows about alarm overload. Everybody knows about alarm fatigue. Everybody knows that sometimes alarms are set so wide as to not go off, but they're not meaningful as alarms or monitors. And I think there's scenarios where alarms are disabled. Absolutely. So, so nobody's going to know. So you don't even know when you have an alarm. So that is the approach that's available today and over the next few years for those that are interested. There is, however, a whole totally different approach coming down the pike. And I could call that smart alerts or smart alarms, where instead of the middleware focusing on the alarms generated by the device and coning them down and configuring them, the middleware here takes the data of the patient out of the device and goes to a smart server. And that server looks at data, looks at the variability of one's heart rate or blood pressure. And based on algorithms, created by smart intelligent processes, that smart server can look at your variability and create alarms around your variability. So the bedside device could be set a low heart rate and a high heart rate. So let's say it's set, I don't know, 60 to 120. Well, in between 60 and 120, a lot of stuff can happen. But it's, the device is not set to look at variability. So let's say your heart rate is variable between 90 and 105 for 10 hours. Now it's slowly settling down at 90, at 85, at 75, and experience intensive is not such a bad sign. Something bad is coming, and it's usually going to uh, go into a bad rhythm or extreme bradycardia. Our system will only hit at the bradycardia, but the smart server hits at a change in variability. That's one approach. Another approach, and it's coming to the marketplace, and, and some commercially available products, looks at combinations of data. So the device itself or a delivery server isn't set up to look at combinations. So middleware that looks at heart rate, blood pressure, minute ventilation, we've now combined two modalities, lactic acid, another modality, and there's an algorithm set to look at combinations of three, four pieces of data live online and say, whoa, this is a bad picture based on the clinical decision support programming or based on data that's sitting in here from the same patient. That smart server sends an alert. The patient is heading into trouble. 
whereas the intensivist may not have seen it, the nurse certainly didn't see it because we're not set necessarily to combine all that information. And in a hospital, that information may be scattered. Maybe it's on an electronic flow sheet, maybe it's not. Maybe the electronic flow sheet picks up 60% of what's at the bedside, but maybe there are devices at the bedside that aren't configured or the hospital connectivity system isn't configured to bring it all home. This kind of system would be configured. So it's taking raw data, individualizing it, combining it, looking at variability changes, and building alarm profiles. That doesn't really exist in the typical ICU of today. I guess there are some, some vendors that have that to a very basic point of uh, a sepsis alert, uh, tachycardia and fever and leukocytosis and such. Correct. So the sepsis bundle type thing is looking at an electronic flow sheet, assuming it picks up all this information, has a simple algorithm to pull data out of the flow sheet or other aspects of the EMR and say, well, it's hitting my bundle level. Let me let the doctor know that this patient fits the sepsis profile. It's a similar idea, but done on raw data coming in. That, uh, from my opinion, that's where we should be going, and, and I think we could get there. Can you speak a little bit, and I know my, my knowledge area in this is, is very low, but I hear a lot more folks talking about variability of different especially vital signs, um, rather than trends. Um, and so what's, what's the difference and what's the benefit of looking at variability? So one would be looking at the trend of the variability. <laughs> so to tease that apart, because the question's a fair question, so one could have a trend of high blood pressure. But within the high blood pressure, there may be great variability. And should that be teased out or should it be ignored? So the proponents of smart alarms would believe, would hold that it should be teased out. Because we could say high blood pressure maybe is bad for you. And we're seeing a trend. And why aren't we treating that? The alternative would be high blood pressure isn't such a big problem. We're not treating chronic hypertensives as a chronic hypertensive when they're in an ICU bed. However, there's variability in the systolic and diastolic or the spread of the systolic and diastolic that portends badness coming our way. Different way of looking at it. And you could combine the mm -hmm. two thoughts. But it is not intuitively obvious in the ICU of today, that's right. for sure. And there are very few people talking about it. And the bulk of that literature is beyond the typical doctor's mental capabilities because it is replete with advanced calculus equations that our mind gets numb when we look at it. So I think the time will come when the mathematicians and the programmers will start translating that into normal ICU language that we could then deal with. And that's the challenge of going through those studies. Well, thank you. I certainly feel better about my, uh, my lack of knowledge in that area. Um, you know, as we move forward, uh, and I use my institution a lot as uh, <clears throat> my background, uh, and look at systems to try and integrate all this data, because 
I think we're met like many institutions where we have different data systems for different areas of the hospital, different data systems for different types of data, um, and look for ways of unification. Uh, the, the major, I guess two major barriers, uh, one really is the cost, uh, and then the other is that there are various vendors that come and go, and how do you know which, which system to go with, and, uh, and, and eventually, ideally, so that uh, all centers could communicate more effectively and, and, and share data more effectively. So those, those are very good questions. We'll leave off the all centers because it's hard enough to do in one ICU bedside. So our experience is we are a very connected ICU working for years to connect all the devices. So connection could be wired or wireless. Whatever connectors you put on a device, you have to convert the device data and send it to a receiving server or, or another device whereas the, the data coming out is known to belong to I am a ventilator, is known to reflect all the various ventilator or the monitoring parameters. So it has to come out of the device that way. The vendors are very simplistic in their presentation in the sales pitch, and that is, oh, we have a data port in the back of our device, whatever the device is, and oh, we communicate in HL7. For our listeners, Health Level 7 was a unified language for health level data. With that said, none of that works that way. And there are groups that look at interoperability of the devices and interoperability of bringing the data across. So I could share that in our ICU for many years, we were transmitting ventilator data through the port and through a, a data identifier converting device to the physiologic monitor. And from there, the physiologic monitor data, in conjunction with the ventilated data, went to a middleware data repository and from there to the electronic flow sheet of our EMR. Life was good. We have recently begun an update of our physiologic monitors with the same vendor. One would think that the connectivity would only have improved. After all, we all know there should be good connectivity. And that the ventilator data, which there's more of today than yesterday because the ventilators have more modes. So the modes are confusing enough to listen to any lectures at SCCM on modes of ventilation. And there is no standardization of ventilator mode terminology among vendors. So we have to be careful to translate that data as it's coming out into a language that the final electronic flow sheet, could, you could talk to it and look at it. So what we found, shockingly to us, is that while it's easy to plug wires into two machines, or wireless connected, connect them, our next generation physiologic monitor from the same vendor, no longer accepted the bulk of the ventilated data. Wow. So we're millions of dollars down into new physiologic monitors. We're 10 years backwards in collecting and transmitting the data and using our paradigm, which is take ventilated data electronically through the monitor onwards. 
So we now have to sit down, hold off installation of the monitors, because we don't want the nurses or the respiratory therapists manually inputting this data that really set us back. They'd go on strike. Even worse, the data either wouldn't be input, it would be input incorrectly. And we now have to look for a different solution to move the ventilated data where it's always gone to middleware repository and ultimately to the electronic flow sheet of the EMR. So in the advance of incorporating new technology, we have stepped backwards in a mind-boggling and very expensive way. So the short answer to your question is, this is a difficult process and as we link more and more devices and data streams together, any small change on any of the sources of data or the way the middleware collects, sorts, and transmits the data, or a change at your electronic medical record in the way it receives the data, will cause all that data to grind to a halt. Sad story. So the question is, who in a hospital keeps track of all this? So uh, that's a tough question. Sometimes it's the person that champions the project and got the money and then runs into a brick wall and you have to figure out how to get around that wall and go through it. Because, especially in a hospital that's used to a well-played electronic flow sheet with automatically moving data. And from a, a clinician's point of view, in uh, speaking with hospital administrators about employing such systems, um, do we have evidence or knowledge about the return or what the benefit is of upgrading technology and improving physiologic monitors? Well, until this recent uh, event, I was a major proponent of upgrading everything, connecting everything, as my hospital administrator would say, spending a lot of her money. However, with that, and I'm still a proponent of it, with that said, whatever you're doing has to have a purpose, and the purpose isn't just upgrade alone. It has to be upgrade for what purpose? What are the goals you'd like to achieve? And what are the bad scenarios that you've gone through in any busy ICU has bad scenarios uh, as you have figured out what happened besides the human portion of it which almost always occurs was there a technologic portion that we the hospital could have implemented to facilitate the human portion and the evidence may be within a hospital we've had one two of these scenarios and we say it couldn't happen again and whatever it is happened the third time and each review pointed to uh, a fix, but it was expensive. It's not just expensive in dollars, it's expensive in programmers and informatics people. And, and keeping track of all the different elements that had to build this kind of record or alarm distribution. Uh, but sometimes the evidence is the third time wasn't a charm and we've identified what the problem is and now let's do our best to put an electronic fix in. So do we say that's crazy, let's just focus on all the humans? Well, it's not what the airline industry says, it's not what the car industry says, uh, 
So as I gave this talk a short while ago, I projected a slide from the Wall Street Journal that looked at a new kind of car with a headrest monitor of electro electrical activity in your head, a webcam in the middle of your steering wheel looking to see with facial recognition software all available through security agencies today see if you're falling asleep, uh, heart rate sensors in the seatbelt and respiratory sensors, no different than what we put on an ICU patient, it's just built into the seatbelt, and a smart app to monitor your glucose level. And if the car's computer system, its sensors, senses that any of these things are going bad, the computer takes over, slows the car down, stabilizes the car, alerts a clinician hooked to the uh, car card information distribution system, which is available for many years on many, many cars. So the question is, are we going to take this kind of advanced thought and put it in with our sickest, most expensive to care for patients? Or not, I would say it's too expensive, it's too hard, it's too this, it's too that. So I'm certainly a proponent of trying to figure out how to do it, but recognizing that resources, both dollars and resources in informatics people are finite and you have to really figure out what it is you want to do, why you want to do it and what it will accomplish. And most of all you have to explain it in a way that the administrators, the bankers of the hospital can actually understand. Sounds so, like we should uh, maybe put our patients in the cars. <laughs> Uh, as, I, as I read the Wall Street Journal article, I said, yeah, I want to be in that car if I'm starting to doze. I'd like the car to alert me and uh, alert itself that there's a potential problem. It's not just a problem for me, it's a problem for all the cars around me. Why not? Well, thank you. It's really been great talking to you, and uh, I appreciate your, your time. Good talking to you as well. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod, as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.